darkly splendid abodes. The official podcast of Toronto Thelema. Exploring, if you will, practical philosophy. From science and the workings of the mind, to spirituality, esotericism, and magic. Stooping down, dipping my wings, I came into the darkly splendid abodes. If you had 30 seconds in an elevator with someone, and you wanted to get across to them what Thelema is all about, or describe to them the Book of the Law, what might you say? Crowley came perhaps as close as he was capable of coming to an elevator pitch with his brief introduction to the Book of the Law. As we kick off a new season of Deep Dips, Michael and I begin by exploring Crowley's introduction to Thelema's most important text. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law, love under will. Welcome back! Hey, yeah, hey, welcome to the second season of your show. (laughs) (laughs) It's our show. Well, the dark, uh, the deep dips is officially our show. Uh, It's our territory at the very least. uh, How are are you? You speak as if we haven't been sitting together in the room for Yeah, am I allowed to ask that on my No, absolutely. The people, it's like we're here the together. People need to know. Yeah, we're, <laughs> <laughs> we're in your living room, people, uh, or person. Maybe I should just address yeah. in the singular because it's just you listening to this on your headphones. Yeah. In the whole world, <laughs> just one one guy who we've never met. <laughs> oh, we gotta be careful there because uh, in this day and age, actually in any day and age, it's easy for people to go completely nuts and <laughs> gaslighting people is probably not really uh, conducive to. Uh... <laughs> oh, I was just thinking more uh, practically speaking about the reach of a program like. Oh this. yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> I'm just thinking about inadvertently... I wasn't trying to convince uh, people we were imaginary. (laughs) 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 But, you know, if that's what they get out of it, I don't think that's my fault. (laughs) Well, yeah, I guess uh, we should uh, introduce today's discussion. We are back with a uh, season two of uh, our Deep Dips, as well as everything else. Here at the darkly splendid abodes, uh, and uh, today we're 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 going to take a look at <laughs> something pretty uh, pretty um, fundamental, I guess. It's uh, the introduction to the Book of the Law. Now, this isn't necessarily part and parcel of the Book of the Law or anything like that, but it is insofar as it's. You know, anytime you buy one of those little red copies of the uh, Book of the Law with the gold writing on it, it uh, comes with that. So it's the introduction that Crowley gives to the Book of the Law. It seemed like for a long time you couldn't get copies of the Holy Books, Mm -hmm. and now um, there's collected editions of the Holy Books uh, circulating again, which is nice, like off-label clandestine copies. I think Conjoined Creation has one. There's a nice paperback edition called In Nomen Babylon, which I believe also includes the uh, the vision and the voice. Uh, the guy I've mentioned before, whose name may or may not be Auntie Balk, mm-hmm. has an edition of the Holy Books of Thelema uh, in red ink, because there's that 
thing where you should print the text in black and, and red, red ink, ink on black. fine paper, whatever. Yeah. And uh, and so he's got one that has some of the text highlighted in red ink. Just the uh, stuff that Jesus said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly, exactly right. Um, but, uh, and so I was just swept away with enjoying this. Uh, and then I saw somebody post on the, on the internet that they are not publishing the preface to the Book of the Law anymore and that it's a shame many people haven't read it. And I thought, is that right? And, like, presumably, and so if you've just been getting, if you have a collected version of the holy books then yeah it's not in there and if you look on the internet to try to download a pdf then it's not in there so unless you have the cute little red like i think mm. of it as the altar copy of the book of the law yeah you don't have this text and mm-hmm. so um i thought it might be kind of worth looking at yeah um, what's the context for this do you know when he wrote this i i assume it would have been around the, you know the early 20s the chefalu period or something like that i have no idea um my context for this and my like uh booby trap question that i was going to ask you to begin this mm. is uh what do you say like first of all when was the last time you had to explain thelema to someone who'd never heard of it before Oh, it's funny because this comes up, I, I I think it's probably come up a couple of times, you know, over the past few months or whatever, uh, when I, I find myself in a position to have to do that, and I evade it. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> Which is not good, I guess, because the law is to, to give, but uh, um, <laughs> it's one of those things where I'm a little bit evasive, at least, and uh, I I find, like, trying to go through the elevator pitch just so tedious. I um I I had to do some teaching uh a couple of months ago to some people who were like interested in Thelema but didn't seem to know very much and so I went on for a long time about like the holy guardian angel and the crossing of the abyss like those two AA crises mm-hmm. and it really seemed like I was uh uh Maybe I got to be careful how I parse this because, like, maybe maybe someone will hear this. But I was like surprised, I guess, is how I should say it, that they didn't that that it seemed like um, they didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> and so uh, I finished by saying, like, like I would mark this stuff because this just is what the Lima is <laughs> the 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 Holy Guardian Angel and the Crossing of the Abyss. And there's yeah. more than one way to define it. But then also I was traveling for lodge and i my spouse told my parents that i was going to be out of the country because i guess it's nice to tell your parents when you're leaving the country (laughs) and they said oh really what's in you know city x what the what the hell are you doing going there and i said i guess it's for cult (laughs) (laughs) and then i i uh uh, i said it was masonry adjacent and they didn't know what that meant either (laughs) Uh, so, uh, this is one, anyway, you were asking about the context for this. I don't know what year it was written. Presumably it went out with a very early edition of the Book of the Law, but, um, uh, I'm actually not sure about that either because I think the text of the Book of the Law might have been first published in the Equinox Mm -hmm. somewhere, and I don't think this was appended to that. Um, but 
spiritually the context for this is what is the first thing you say to someone exactly who's yeah. never heard of Thelema before this is about as good as it gets really i mean this is what he's going for and uh it it has the flavor of crowley uh writing in the 20s or 30s in okay. my opinion just in my associations um because he's he's speaking he's he's basically getting to the point of what the philosophy of the book is and um it's it's very lucid and it's very concise which is nice because crowley's not usually concise per se and uh it's in five parts yeah we got what sort of five short essays mm -hmm. and i think in two hours we can probably deal with them all mm -hmm. some of them need less dealing with than others and if we're using our rule of like sticking to the text, um, sometimes there just isn't that much to dig into. Mm -hmm. uh, this first essay on the book uh, sort of says this book was dictated in, Tyro in Cairo between noon and 1 p.m. on three successive days, April 8th, 9th, and 10th in the year 1904. The author called himself Iowas and claimed to be the minister of Hurpakrat, that is, a messenger from the forces ruling the earth at present, as will be explained later on. Um, so, uh, setting this up as a, as a received teaching, not, mm -hmm. the, not the work of the human author, but the work of a, uh, of a spiritual being, uh, a messenger from the forces ruling the earth at present, cryptically and tantalizingly. Mm -hmm. uh, and it says that he showed his knowledge chiefly by the use of cipher or cryptogram in certain passages to set forth recondite facts, including some events which had yet to take place, such that no human being could possibly be aware of them. Thus, the proof of his claim existed in the manuscript itself and is independent of any human witness. And so this, of course, is very tantalizing. And I think the reason it doesn't dig more deeply into this here is that the um, the idea is that this is a setup for the Book of the Law. So you're supposed to then be hungry to want to read it and try to do some work on these ciphers for yourself. All he says is, this is a matter best studied under the Master Therion, uh, whose years of arduous research have led him to enlightenment. And uh, it promises... Uh, that more will be explained in an upcoming paper called The Equinox of the Gods. And uh, so this could be a thing that we talk about mm -hmm. later if we do so, if we find some readings that talk about the proofs of the Book of the Law and the Equinox of the Gods. But mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know. It, it seems like the import of this is like, if you have a text that claims to be of spiritual origin, how do you verify it? Well, one way might be, uh, um, are there things in there that the author himself doesn't know or didn't know he knew so that the author can be, the, the sorry, in this case, the scribe can be surprised by their own work because the, the real author, the spiritual author, uh, has, has given them, uh, has given them, uh, information in such a cryptic way that they don't realize until later on what the book is about. And also, um, if you can sort of reliably predict one or two future events, then that also shows a supernatural origin for the book. Um, mm. uh, what do you think? Yeah, this, each of these little, each of these little essays, as you put it, uh, they uh, uh, are covering one of the facets, at least, of uh, <clears throat> what he feels is important about this text. 
And this is the one he starts with, is the fact that this is like uh, something that he's not laying claim to uh, or authorship of. He's he's thinks it's extremely important that this is uh, the first time in his mind in human history that we have something that's verifiable as discarnate intelligence communicating with us mm -hmm. that we have potential to prove via the text itself. And he feels that there's been a number of ways in which it's been proven already, and there's a, all kinds of stuff still packed into it that hasn't been uh, brought out yet. I was um, looking at, because there's five of these little uh, sections here, I was uh, playing with this, uh, with the idea that Crowley tends to think Kabbalistically, so like uh, when he was dictating uh, um, uh, Magic and Theory and Practice, he was. Uh, he claimed that he he did so in twenty two chapters or twenty one chapters plus chapter zero, uh, mirroring the tarot, the t trumps mm -hmm. of the tarot. But he wasn't realizing that until later on. So that's his his claim. Um, so much was his brain kind of working in that kind of methodical. Uh, Kabbalistic system. So uh, I was thinking, I, I was kind of looking at each of these little groupings uh, and thinking, well, do they relate to the uh, the rays of the law? So okay. light, life, liberty, and love. Um, so I was kind of playing with that a little bit. And uh, it's probably, I, I don't know how, how accurate that ends up being, but we'll play with that maybe. And I was kind of thinking of this as being light, because it's something that's coming through from uh, beyond just the human. Yes, we've had this argument before, the question of whether uh, light is primary or whether law is primary. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, I, I was going to guess that you were going to say this chapter was the law, because it's, uh, it's entitled The Book, which later becomes The Book of the Law. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and, and yeah, the... the it's tricky the going by just the... Yeah, yeah the, the titles themselves, because, I mean, there's a later one, a later one that's actually called The Law of Thelema, mm -hmm. which is a little bit trickier to uh, <laughs> argue against. However, I was kind of categorizing that one as love, just because of the content of the chapter. So again, I'm not sure that it all lines up, but it's, it might be a little bit of a conceit. Um, it was obviously a bit of a conceit on my part to, uh, to be projecting this onto the text, but which points of the pentagram are they? The book could be spirit. Mm-hmm. That would be my assumption. Mm-hmm. It's just whether spirit is law or light that we will continue <laughs> to argue about down into the ages. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the uh, uh, things about this text is uh, he's, he's saying that um, the language of most of the book is admirably simple, clear, and vigorous. No one can read it without being stricken in the very core of his being, uh, which is true. However, it, it is simple language, especially um, not many words that are, you know, more than a couple or three, two or three syllables long uh, in a lot of cases. But uh, I remember giving a copy of this to somebody uh, who couldn't make heads or tails out of it. And uh, I mean, going back to the idea of introducing somebody to Thelema, um, giving them the book of the law is 
not helpful in elucidation. <laughs> I, I think I've had some times uh, when it was really difficult for me to understand what was going on, uh, just in terms of literacy, like picking this up and thinking that it was unlike anything else I'd, I'd ever read. Um, and it takes a few goes to start figuring things out. Like e even for a layperson, the idea that like Nuit and Hadith represent gods, and that they're each dictating their separate chapters. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Iowa seems to be dictating it all, it, the whole thing. So how are these spiritual beings then? So it's anyway. Once you sort of decode the nuts and bolts of the text, um, then certain things become a little clearer, realizing that there are conversations going on in mm -hmm. the holy books, even though there's no quotation marks and stuff. Uh, but I do think this is important. Thank you for noticing that paragraph. The language of the book is admirable, simple, clear, and vigorous. Admirably simple, clear, and vigorous. Um, sorry. Uh, people will go on and on about the the layers of metaphor and euphemism and, you know, say that certain verses mean the opposite to what they seem to say. Mm. Uh, there are challenges in the book that people, um, you know... Uh, I will give I will give you of their blood to drink, for example, and uh, let Mary in violet be torn upon wheels. wheels is that right? Uh, I think it's I will give you of their flesh to eat. I will give you of their flesh to eat, and uh, have nothing with the outcast and the unfit. Let them die in their misery. This sort of thing, and that people people really want to take it metaphorically and mm -hmm. and, and derive uh, a subtle spiritual lessons that use use the criticisms to self-interrogate and uh and and be discriminating with aspects of their psyche or consciousness let's say um and i'm not saying that those layers don't exist but here's uh the chief advocate for the text telling you that it's admirably simple clear and vigorous mm -hmm. and so uh, I, I'm, I continue to, to hold, a, hold a stick for the literal reading of many, many passages, uh, perhaps not those that encourage cannibalism. Uh, <laughs> again, to my lone person in a room who thinks we're figments of his imagination, <laughs> please do not, do not think that I'm telling you to, to, to eat people. Um, but, uh, but yeah, much of this, I think, also has in addition to its metaphorical meaning, also has a literal meaning that, uh, that you don't want to ignore. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I think that's the, the most challenging thing about the book is that it's not just challenging, but that you will, uh, I mean, we will tend to kind of uh, divert ourselves from that challenge and find ways to, to um, bypass and all that good fun. But uh, it, it does take some familiarity to get to know, you know, the, the basic plot of the book or the players and all that sort of thing. Um, personally, I find that, uh, uh, you know, any, any, any uh, holy text kind of operates like a lens, you know, and it's got a relationship with you in a big way, you know, and uh, you, can, you can use it 
uh, and it will grow with you. So like in this case, I think that's the way I feel about the Book of the Law. That's the way I would feel about the Holy Bible. You know, you can get a lot of the Holy Bible, um, which is anathema to a lot of Thelemites, but uh, um, <laughs> oh well. <laughs> I think any holy text is is uh, is potentially worthwhile in some respect. Because these chapters are short, I usually go in through and, and mark out quotations for us to read, and I've actually. Um, blocked out more than half of this in its entirety it's stuff to read um uh, and it's because there there aren't threads of argument to to pull really except for one clear you know each chapter makes a, a series of clear statements that are sometimes statements under themselves anyway uh the second essay is called the universe and i will i will read it in its entirety mm -hmm. this book explains the universe the elements are nuit, space, that is, the total possibilities of every kind, and hadit, any point which has experience of these possibilities. This idea is for literary convenience, symbolized by the Egyptian goddess Nuit, a woman bending over like the arc of the night sky. Hadit is symbolized as a winged globe at the heart of Nuit. I'm not sure Crowley understands what the word convenience means. For convenience, symbolized by the <laughs> Egyptian goddess Nuit, a woman bending over like the Ark of the Night Sky. So um, one of the, the struggles with this, uh, again, the, the simpleness and vigorousness of this introduction, is um, that in some ways I already know what I want to say about all this stuff, and so it's hard for me to, for me to, to sort of read the text as... As, as it is, and mm -hmm. think about what Crowley's trying to say, because, because I have some screed that I usually go on here about, you know, the Egyptian gods are, sorry, not the Egyptian gods, the Thelemic gods are, are natural principles, but in the Thelemic conception, natural, also natural principles actually are deities. Mm -hmm. So it's not just that... Um, well, he'll get into uh, the idea that, um, I mean... Just coming up, he'll be talking about the, the fact that uh, every man and every woman is a star. That is an aggregate of such experiences. So every event is a uniting of some one monad with one of the experiences possible to it. That was the uh, line that's referring to. So, And I, I, it was, I found it interesting rereading this portion for this uh where he's saying uh every man and every woman is a star that is an aggregate of such experiences constantly changing with each fresh event which affects him or her either consciously or subconsciously and uh, uh i thought this was really interesting especially because i've been brushing up on a lot of philosophical writings and stuff like that lately so one of the things i was reading was uh ayer um which is um language truth and logic something like that um uh but uh and it's it's that point in philosophy where uh from an empiricist point of view he's pointing out the fact that a lot of the metaphysical ideas that come into philosophy are actually just uh pretty much aberrations of logic because uh it's a linguistic 
aberration that's going on. So the idea of like using the word is um, can be problematic in, in creating in creating a misinterpretation of a lot of the, the ways that we're using language and that sort of thing. Um, and it really, uh, between that and just listening to a lot of uh, scientific, uh, like scientists and mathematicians speaking about science and physics and that sort of thing, it seems like very much the uh, mo modern foregoing conception of the individual is as an ag aggregate of experiences, essentially, as, a, as opposed to, say, the old conception of a soul or a, a person as a monad in the sense of, you know, um, that Atman or uh, uh, whatnot. Another way to talk about this is to think about the individual as being a microcosm and the universe as being a, a macrocosm mm -hmm. um, because, and, and Crowley will will mention this explicitly in, in, the, in a couple more paragraphs saying uh, about, uh, oh, each one of us has thus a universe of his own, but it is the same universe for each one as soon as it includes all possible experience. So for, for now... It does not include all possible experience, and you have contained within yourself um, the whole uh, context of the universe that you understand. Mm -hmm. You know, if you think about um, Jupiter, you know, let's say that there's a real Jupiter that's out there that's part of our solar system. You may have some facts about Jupiter, and you can imagine, uh, at least roughly speaking, not in any crystal clear way, but you can imagine light years and light years, and you can believe that that's out there. Um, but the only reason you can imagine those things is that they're represented in your consciousness somehow. Mm -hmm. Perhaps not as physical representations, but um, but but you know they're out there by virtue of having internalized that knowledge. Yeah, it's just a conception so, that you're you're holding at the moment. So your even though there there is an objective universe, your universe lives inside your being. It's circumscribed by everything that mm -hmm. is that that you define as yourself. Which is tricky territory because this is where people tend to get off on that you know tangent of like uh, the idea that. Uh, the universe is mental. That's one of those things that creeped into philosophy and the idea that we create the universe by observing it, which is one of those sneaky uh, quantum mechanical ideas uh, that people like to run with and turn into something that's not. And, uh, you know, this kind of thing where it's like you, you, the universe is just your mind. So, uh, you know, it's all uh, part of you and that sort of thing, which I think is one of those linguistic troubles that I was talking about. This is something I was doing a lot of thinking about about five years ago, but my favorite philosophy podcast that I mentioned on here before, The Partially Examined Life, was harping on this just two weeks ago. So lest I be accused of, of cribbing, I'll just <laughs> I'll give credit where credit is due. And, uh, um, you know, every idealist philosopher has some explanation for object permanence. You know, the, the, the world exists even when we're not looking at it. Mm -hmm. And so for, uh, for, for Descartes, we get the world back when we realize that there is a God who could never possibly deceive us. Like, it's not an evil demon keeping us in a box. It's, it, it really is God. And, uh, and, and we know this because of some bizarre version of Anselm's ontological argument. And so once we have God, then the rest of, the, the rest of existence comes back, even though he's imagining that maybe there's a sense experience beyond his, uh, that, that there's a, 
that he can distrust his sense experience. Uh, for um, Kant, there's these things in themselves which have the power to impress impressions upon us. And even though we don't know anything about the things in themselves, like our world is this world of ideas, there still is a, a, a real object that impresses itself upon us. And even for uh, Barclay, who's like the most idealist of all the idealists, who uh, I, my, my, my thing of... Um, saying that like like natural principles are deities but de but but natural deities are natural principles but but natural principles actually are deities um there's a way i heard talked about barclay saying that like yes all objects are only ideas, but ideas actually are objects. And uh, and mm -hmm. so he he acknowledges that like even though the way we receive objects is is wrong, they're 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 only ideas, they're only perceptions. There is no thing in itself. Uh, we he gets object permanence by talking about the mind of God, so that when we're not looking, you know, God when God we look away, God turns his attention yeah. <laughs> and keeps the object where it is. So you you don't get um, an explanation of magical principles just from. Uh, the philosophy of I, of idealism, because even though I think Kant's right that we we live in this ideological world, he, there's there there are still um, there are still things in themselves that are remote to us um, that we can't access, but they exist. They still they still mm -hmm. exist. Uh, however you want to to describe and thanks that. for bringing that up the uh, the idea of the gods um because i mentioned that uh, the individual is described here by crowley as an aggregate of experiences uh and so later on he'll talk about deities as uh, uh like a, a larger scale aggregate um in a similar kind of way yeah that's a good point um gods are going to be weird ones because uh they they will exist in our ideological world and have existence in the same way of, as anything else you know as a as a you know this chair is a collection of ideas and perceptions and whatever and the coffee is a, is a collection of uh of uh, of sense data and ideas um and uh, and so in the same way things like gods are collections of sense experiences and ideas, um, but uh, but that don't seem to come from anywhere in the same way that you know we perceive objects in space. So that's so they, they gods in a way exist in the phenomenal world, and and perhaps and it's unclear whether they exist in the nominal world. So that's. Uh, that's a that's that is a weird one, but um, but there's also this idea, this Deus ex homo thing, right? And so as we expand ever the domain of our consciousness and become larger and larger, and as Crowley says, uh, uh, eventually this our universes become one universe as we become fully aware of the dimension of them. Uh, then then we exist as we we have the potential to exist as gods if we fully internalized, you know some agreed upon idea of what space is or something. <laughs> um, this is not, I don't think what he means when he says the above is an extremely crude attempt to explain the system, which reconciles all existing schools of philosophy. He is pointing at Kant. He wants us to read Kant. He wants us to read the prolegomena to any future metaphysics. Um, but, 
if you also look back at his, um, is it called a little note in ontology? I, I always say a little essay in ontology, but oh, that's yeah. wrong. Bereshit, the, the a note in ontology. Um, he says that the, the three philosophies are um, a sort of monism, which is all is one, everything is, is made of God, and he sort of thinks that's a bit weird because it doesn't allow any room for anything else. So if you understand man is finite, then like if God's infinite and everything, no matter how big man is, he is nothing at all when expressed as a ratio. So if you're a monist, sort of your position is that you don't exist. Um, and then uh, there's a dualism, which I've talked about before as being like self, not self. Um, and then uh, sort of a, is, is for him, is it pluralism or nihilism next? It's some sort of nihilism, I think. Um, but I, I, I think that somehow he thinks... Um, this this Kantian idea of like an objective world that we have no access to except that we're microcosms of our own universe roughly speaking Kantian not not really but uh is is somehow a way of of reconciling all those philosophies and putting putting a pin in it that that works and and that that is that is coherent and and useful uh and he doesn't say much more about it except that it's only crudely illustrated in this paper, so I don't feel equipped to say much more about it. Mm -hmm. but I think that's kind of what he's pointing at. Yeah, he touches that on that uh, in, in the paper that you were alluding to, as well as in uh, some of uh, Magic you know, Without Tears, um, in a couple of letters there, where he's talking about, um, I think, the different schools of magic, something along those lines, I think it's those ones. But um, but yeah, moving on. Um why don't you read whatever it is you had marked out to read from the Law of Thelema? <clears throat> Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law, love under will. There is no law beyond do what thou wilt. This means that each of us stars is to move on our true orbit. As marked out by the nature of our position, the law of our growth, the impulse of our past experiences. All events are equally lawful, and everyone necessary in the long run, for all of us, in theory. But in practice, only one act is lawful for each one of us at any given moment. Therefore, duty, with a capital D, consists in determining to experience the right event from one moment of consciousness to another. So uh, this is, I think, um, as he's getting into this whole idea of like, uh, e each action or motion is an act of love, the uniting of with one or another part of Nuit. Um, this is why I was kind of thinking, uh, even though it's entitled The Law of Thelema, uh, it was making me think of um, love instead. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think in terms of uh, in terms of like uh, of like which of the rays it is, I think love is good here. The, th the first thing that occurs to me is I had sort of like an inexpressible frustration with Jack Parsons' uh, conception of the two-edged sword. Mm -hmm. Like like that, oh, you know, freedom for me has to mean freedom for everyone. And I thought that was a bit bland and a bit wrong for Thelema, a, a bit kind of what everybody on the internet sort of says mm -hmm. now. Um, and, 
and 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 now we've we've sort of seen why here because the two-edged sword really means that if you're free to do anything if 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 all of the world's possibilities are laid out before you and no there's no external moral authority to tell you what to do uh then the moral authority is you know you doing the right thing mm-hmm. <laughs> you know by by yourself for yourself based on your understanding of 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 your purpose and your actions and your he calls it here an orbit uh what we think of as being uh, true will in in Thelema the book of the law doesn't include that term but so the, the the two-edged sword is more like is more like there's this there's this ultimate free freedom uh no one's going to tell you what to do therefore maybe you're you're paralyzed <laughs> the the <laughs> um the, the the tyranny of too much choice or something like that like you have there there is there is one right thing to do mm-hmm. and no one else is going to tell you what it is yeah and i like this uh being able to encapsulate that with the the term duty uh, yeah. it makes me think of um the uh the old latin term virtus virtus uh which uh, uh did give rise to our present day word virtue but the term virtue is a corruption of what it used to mean in in ancient Rome, in ancient Rome, it, the word for man or hero was vir, weir, and this is the word that gave rise to uh, the word virtus, uh, which was um, a sense of duty in that kind of honor and uh, um, everything you can kind of imagine with the idea of um, being living up to that image of the hero. I almost don't want to get into over over uh, defining it for myself, but. Uh, um, point being, it didn't. It wasn't the same thing as what became virtue and what we associate with that as a result of the past couple thousand years of Christianity and whatnot. So, um, I feel like duty here. Uh, that's kind of the way Crowley's talking about it with regards to doing well, doing what thou wilt, do following your finding out your true will, doing the right thing at the right time for your will. And is that from is that that from the paper on duty where he says you know discover your true will do that and do nothing else? Sounds about right. I was I meant to actually reread that that paper, but I don't want to uh, go off the top of my head and assume at the moment. But uh, but there is somewhere in there the the do that and do nothing else, and also mm-hmm. in uh, the book of the law, thou hast no right but to do thy will. Do that, and no other shall say nay, and. Uh, that's and that's really the two-edged sword. That's like uh, you know, um, if you were just able, you can do whatever you want and fuck everyone else, forget about everybody else's opinion and all that sort of thing. Well, that's that's not giving you the whole story. Um, it's there isn't anyone else. <laughs> well, that's right, and 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 often. The, the way I'm characterizing this is often a bit wrong to say that uh, that no one's going to tell you what to do. The problem is everyone is going to try to tell <laughs> yeah. you what to do. And, uh, and, and freedom means having the courage to do the right thing in the face of bad advice. Yeah, whatever so, that right thing is. Whatever your right moment. thing is. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, that's the problem is that it's not, well, I mean, I, I don't think that it's a blanket thing. You know, you can start getting in your head uh, what the right thing is at all moments, 
But I, I think, I feel that in Thelema, we can see that the worldview for Thelema is that, well, morality is relative. The circumstances dictate the correct action. Uh, and you had sort of maybe read this already, but uh, I also had marked out here, each action or motion is an act of love uniting with one or another part of Nuit. Each such action must be under will chosen so as to fulfill and not to thwart the true nature of the being concerned. So the emphasis in moral conduct is to uh, uh, bring out the true nature of the, of the being concerned. Mm-hmm. The previous section, uh, section two, uh, kind of laid out the environment that we were in. That was the section that I think I, I had listed down as, uh, that was the universe, I, I had listed down as life. Life and uh, sort of dealing with the basic philosophy of Thelema in terms of the environment uh, that we're t- it's taking place in for the individual, and so this is uh, next going to the practical aspect of things, and together they kind of allude to the idea of increasing the self to eventually become coterminous with the universe. Do we make the? Uh... In terms of our points of the pentagram, do we make the universe uh, water and the law of Thelema air? What do you think? Or am I... Is there some... I'm going to withhold judgment at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's go to uh, the fourth essay on the new Aeon. And uh, I had at some point said that uh, if we read this then we can cut out a bunch of rambling stuff we'd said in previous chapters on uh, on the uh, succession of the of the mm. aeons, the procession of the equinoxes or whatever. But maybe that's not quite right, because I think that what we talked about before still has val- value, and like everything here, this is sort of concise, um, if a bit long. Uh, the third chapter of the book is difficult to understand and may be very repugnant to many people born before the date of the book. It, uh, it tells us the characteristics of the period on which we are now entered. Superficially, they appear appalling. We see some of them already with terrifying clarity. This is a cute idea, this idea that the book of the law will be difficult to understand and repugnant to people before, born before the date of its reception, <laughs> except as if the date of its reception would be uh, a hard line yeah. between, <laughs> uh, between old thinking people and new thinking people. And uh, there's certainly been a lot of, um, uh, shall we say, innovation in the field of ethics and, and uh, in the last... Uh, you know, 118 years, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, um, but yeah, I, I I don't know whether it's a it's a hard line drawn <laughs> down the down April 8th, 1904. Yeah, I might suggest that it's more like uh, you know, if there was a dong at that point in 1904, um, there's going to be kind of like you you know your pendulum swinging back and forth as as the mean itself is somewhere in the middle there rather than you know at one of the extremes yeah the the destruction of the world by fire more like dong i like your image of a of a, of a vibrating bell like a sine wave going out mm-hmm. uh and the sound waves move so so uh so 
quickly and so subtly, right? And they they whoosh out and they swing back so that you don't usually even feel the movement of the air, but it is moving. It's vibrating mm-hmm. and waving around you. And, uh, and so for every push of energy, there's a retraction to the same, to yeah. the same degree, uh, which is how we're able to hear things. Otherwise it would just sound like wind. And there's going to be a, there's been constantly a reaction back and forth over the, over the, uh, the decades since, uh, and there will continue to be so going into the future. I don't doubt. The characteristics of the period in which we are now entered superficially appear appalling. I mean, uh, I think people will say that uh, um, all all times appear appalling to those who are paying attention. Yeah, that's the uh, that that's the declaration of the nihilistic age in which we reside. <laughs> uh, that, that it's always been all bad all over, and and surely it has been for many people. But you know, uh, crow the the. Period immediately following the reception of the Book of the Law is marked by the f- first two of what we call the World Wars, the the most ca- among the most cataclysmic conflicts the world has ever been submerged into. <laughs> Not only that, and then, uh, but yeah, the nuclear uh, capabilities that uh, fi- for the first time humanity was capable of wiping out all life on the planet. Well, yeah, so, you know, it's uh, bleaker than it was, whatever you want to say. It's not just <laughs> that the news is better. The news is far worse, and that's also a problem. <laughs> <laughs> and this uh, is where it gets into the, uh, but fear not! Uh, but then it, it explains... That certain, the book itself, I should say, Mm. explains that certain vast stars or aggregates of experience may be described as gods. This is where we get into that. One of these is in charge of the destinies of this planet for periods of 2,000 years. And this is indeed where we're getting into the idea of the Aeon proper, uh, which uh, I, I guess we can say is fundamental to Thelema. Uh, and I mean, it may seem obvious, but then again, uh, it's probably worth addressing because I, I think there's, it's easy for people to, uh, start to argue, uh, against the idea of aeons because of the fact that it's like, well, you can see it as being uh, something that was derived from, uh, uh, J.G. Frazier, I believe. Um, and, uh, I think, uh, did it come from other sources as well? Uh, I'm not clear on this. I, I don't know if I've, um, uh, if I've noticed it in the bits of the Fraser that I've read. Um, I, I know I, it was a popular idea at the time, at least anyway, mm-hmm. it was a popularly growing idea that there was a period of, uh, uh, motherly goddess worship, uh, followed by the past 2,500 years of, uh, father worship and that we're now, um, I mean, the age of Aquarius and all that sort of thing, and and the idea that there's, uh, I mean, here we have in Thelema the idea of the Aeon of the Child, of course. Um, whether that's a hard line, whether that actually all adds up, it's fundamental to Thelema. It's kind of hard to ignore. Well, so if you're not going to do the, the Thelemic eschatology, and by eschatology, I mean like this idea of the end of the world. You know, what does the, what does the the, the tracing the path of history? What does it look like? Um, if you're not going to use this eschatology, if you think this sounds a little bit far fetched, um, the question is, what concrete thing are you going to replace it with? Mm-hmm. Because if individuals have have a work, 
you know, a, a, a thing that they're sort of born to do, um, then that's kind of meaningless if all of history is kind of a directionless meandering. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you're born, if you exist for a reason and are working towards a goal, then surely um, there is some sort of cosmic goal. Uh, and, uh, and, and I don't think it's obvious that civilization is progressing technologically, that civilization is progressing morally, that civilization is progressing, uh, you know, that it, uh, in terms of like greater happiness, you know, uh, greater status for people. It, it, there, there isn't to me an obvious linear, like, like movement from backwardness to forwardness Mm -hmm. where, where everything's always just getting a little bit better for everyone. And, you know, weren't our ancestors silly and, and, and now we're doing better. So these sort of cosmic, if you want to think of them as fairy tales, at least give, um, give, give a a shape to a, a spiritual shape rather than a material shape to, a, a, a thing to be doing with your life. This is why I think, like in addition to this a, this thing about aeons, reincarnation is also important, right? Because the work you're doing in your life, you know, m- many people may not feel like they ac- seem to have accomplished very much, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and um, especially like if all you've done is go into a monastery and <laughs> and pray for a long time and then die uh that's okay but the 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 work you're doing you have you you at least have to have the sense that it continues in order to motivate you to do it mm-hmm. so. and i like the, in this case like i mean i don't know if i'm coming off as uh being against the idea of aeons but i think it's worthy of discussion um i will at times uh, completely buy into it, but I will also completely question it because that's just what I do. But, uh, here it's talking about the idea of, um, the God of the Aeon, the particular Aeon involved as itself, a star, an aggregate of experience. So you could kind of think of that as like this greater form uh, con- with the uh, con- its constituent parts are all of humanity, or the 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 greater societies within humanity, and that sort of thing, uh, contributing to this this greater personification. It's kind of an interesting idea, and that um, that could be you could envision that as being this. Um, bubble of consciousness growing over time, and then as the uh, the wand is passed uh, with the new aeon, uh, it takes on a new form. Uh, I think you got as far as two thousand years. It says the um, so there are two thousand. Each of these gods rules of the planet for periods of two thousand years. Here he says in the history of the world, as far as we know accurately, accurately accurately is an amusing thing to say. <laughs> as far as we know accurately, there are three such gods. Isis the mother, when the universe was conceived as simple nourishment drawn directly from her, a period marked by matriarchal government. Next, beginning in 500 uh, BC, Osiris the father, when the universe was imagined as catas- 
catastrophic love, death, resurrection as a method by which experience was built up. This corresponds to the patriarchal system. Now Horace the child, in which we come to perceive events as a continual growth, partaking in its elements of both these methods, not to be overcome by circumstance. This present period involves the recognition of the of the individual as the, as the unit of society. I don't know what a univisual is, but, <laughs> but uh, this is important. The present period involves the recognition of the individual as the unit of society. Mm -hmm. So this is interesting because I've parsed this in a number of different ways over the course of the way we've been talking. But, um, but here he says, nourishment drawn directly from her. And then uh, catastrophic love, death, resurrection, and then partaking of the elephants bo of both of these methods, but not to be overcome by circumstance. So a, a certain uh, vigorousness, um, uh, still understanding the tragedy of catastrophic love, death, and resurrection, while also drawing nourishment directly from spirit, and with the added. Uh, with the added element of not being overcome by circumstance, of being being vigorous, and uh, and and making our choices in, in the face of 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 anything, and and sort of uh, well, the way it's put in the in the book is conquering. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is the portion that uh, I I had labeled law. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I, I'm I think probably partially just for you know um, the difficulty of putting everything in a place, but uh, I also labeled it as uh, whereas we had um, the first chapter was uh, discarnate intelligence and the second was philosophy, mm -hmm. setting up the philosophy. The third chapter was the practical aspects uh, of the work involved, and then this would be teleology it's the mm. idea of seeing things in in terms of historical development and and that sort of thing as you were sort of touching on earlier um so yeah regardless of whether there is some grand goal that we're working towards whether it's the end of the world or it's uh you know the beginning of some great paradise in the future or something like that um we are developing uh yeah i should say that um in at least in my conception uh the we're post-apocalyptic mm -hmm. this is we're not in a we're not, a, not an apocalyptic cult but crowley calls the reception of the book of the law this event that's being described here the destruction of the world by fire yes, yes. so as far as i'm concerned we've we've already had one apocalypse in mm -hmm. 1904 and we can't expect another one for he says 2000 years yeah. so <laughs> this is not a not a not a prepper cult uh the the work we're it's doing in terms of cult. yeah we're post-prepper <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> uh, it was, it's, I find it interesting because in the uh, in the D, in the John D uh, manuscripts, there's uh, the angels talk about uh, the fact that at that time they say that this is the end of our time mm -hmm. and there will be a new time to come. And it, it uh, there's a lot of little places in the D manuscripts where the angels seem to be alluding to. It, it lines up with Thelema, cool, pretty strongly, which is pretty cool. Um, 
Yeah. So the so our work in the world is not to sell out all of our properties and dig a big hole and try to live <laughs> in it uh, to for the sake of um, you know propagation of the species or whatever through uh, or or to or to try to get raptured. Uh, our um, our true will is necessarily post prep, mm-hmm. <laughs> as you as you've, you've said. So what it, whatever it is, it's going to be about uh, about setting the stage for the next two thousand year period. Mm-hmm. Not not about um, spiritually enduring the end of the previous two thousand year period. Hopefully, you know, atom bombs <laughs> notwithstanding. Uh, this is a little bit of uh, political commentary, and I don't necessarily want to make too much of it, but I think it's worth reading. People run away from this uh, scary stuff, so uh, so let's not do that. Observe for yourselves the, dis- the decay of the sense of sin, the growth of innocence and irresponsibility, the strange modifications of the reproductive instinct with a tendency be- to become bisexual or epicene, the childlike confidence in progress combined with the nightmare fear of catastrophe against which we are yet half unwilling to take precautions. That's (laughs) only truer today than it ever was then. (laughs) Consider the outcrop of dictatorships only possible when moral growth is in its earliest stages and the prevalence of infantile cults like communism, fascism, pacifism, health crazes, occultism in nearly all its forms, religions sentimentalized to the point of practical extinction. Consider the popularity of the cinema, the wireless, the football pools, guessing competitions, all devices for soothing fractious infants, no seed of purpose in them. Consider sport, the babyish enthusiasms and rages which it excites, whole nations disturbed by disputes between boys. Consider war, the atrocities which occur daily and leave us unmoved and hardly worried. We are children. And this... uh, Children uh, of light, we are shining. You know, uh, uh, the only little point of apologia I want to offer here for uh, for this. So if we're so fond of making ad hominem attacks against Crowley, oh, he was a Satanist. His insights can't be possibly be insightful. I will, I will also, by virtue of the same ad hominem reasoning, say he couldn't be possibly be homophobic because he was a bisexual. Mm-hmm. Uh, so <laughs> other than that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let this stand and the people can eat it because, it, holy smokes, is it incisive. <laughs> Yeah, I would say uh, um, I would just like to uh, ferret out one little uh, point, which is that he's also calling out. Um, I mean, this all sounds a little bit like he's saying these are like he's these are. Um, well, I mean, I, in some of these things, like consider the outcrop of dictatorships only possible, yada, 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 fascism, pacism, pacifism, health crazes, all these things. It sounds a little bit derogatory in, in many places, but uh, it's just he's pointing at the fact of the, like how this all alludes to this childish nature that we have. And there's nothing wrong with this childish nature. It is our nature right now that I, he's getting at. I think... I, I I would tend to see it as a, as a little bit more problematic than that. I think it is intentionally condescending, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and I think if it hurts people, that's okay. Yeah, because uh, but, but actually, what I was going to get at, sorry to cut you off there, yeah. is I didn't mean to. Uh, that wasn't actually the point I was getting at. I wanted to ferret out the uh, occultism. 
Yeah. In nearly all its forms. Nearly all its forms. Except this. Except, <laughs> yeah, except this for one. this form. Yeah. <laughs> 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 we'll just give it a give it a few decades and yeah. we'll, we'll make this that kind of was as a well. fraud. You gotta send me a couple of bucks though. I got my new Equinox coming. Yeah. <laughs> um the uh so 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 yes, there's there's nothing inherently wrong with childishness. It, not only is it our destiny in this the aeon of the child to embody childishness, but we're also early in the aeon. Mm-hmm. So that is why this childishness is coming out. But also it just is childishness. Yeah, it's and it's Crowley, why it's coming out in you know unproductive ways or ways that are kind of trying to stumble out blindly and try things and that sort of thing. Crowley, yeah. uh, uh often extols the virtues of manhood which are um and and when he's talking about oh the you know this manly thing or this is this is manually and this thing like, oh what this great manly thing uh um he, he means in part i think uh, not childish mm-hmm. <laughs> you know like you one can't be manly if one is childish and so uh, uh, there are sincere complaints here, um, but there, there's also an acknowledgement of the facts of the case at hand. Well, he, in, in a few places also talks about the fact that he recognizes that he was born before the Aeon. Mm-hmm. So he's still a child of the old Aeon himself and recognizes the fact that he, he has difficulty completely understanding everything about the new Aeon. You know, he recognizes his own shortcomings in that respect. And I think we can still... Uh, like I, I, I certainly recognize that for myself. Like the fact that uh, you know, as time goes on and we see new generations born and and growing up and whatnot, um, it's easy to get into that old man kind of mentality of like uh, these kids today and all that sort of thing. And it's like no, they're <laughs> it's uh, that's whatever's going forward is nothing to do with what we want. It's nothing to do with what we think is correct and all that sort of thing. It is what it is. Uh, yeah, uh, except I think sometimes Thelema, Crowley thought of Thelema as being like the antidote to some of this stuff, uh, you know, communism, fascism, pacifism, health crazes, and in the, uh, in the, the Jack Parsons we read talking about, you know, how, li- how good old fashioned liberalism is going to be the solution for, mm. you know, people accusing each other of being communists and fascists when they're all really just totalitarians. Mm. Uh, um, so uh, the, there is a core virtue here that we, even if we're uh, cranky old men, we still have to believe in this core virtue of, uh, you know, liberty, egalité, fraternité, or whatever. You know, that, that, uh, that, it, that if we believe people should be, should be free watching... Watching children try to censor each other isn't like, oh, it's not our world anymore. It's like, I think we're allowed to think that that's bad. That's that's absolutely correct. Yeah. And uh, I think uh, in this case, actually, to your point, um, I was about to ask, okay, well, you know, this is true. What is Crowley's recommendation of how Thelema is going to help? Uh, He does end every one of these little chapters uh, with uh, some spin on. Uh, the idea of under the enlightened guidance of the master theory. He wants you to send him an email. Yeah. 
<laughs> so he wants to uh, he wants to point out that he is the world teacher here. If you uh, if, yeah, if you ask a question, he will answer you. You <laughs> but, might not like the answer, but he's available to take questions. And you can, I mean, people can criticize this as being like a, like a complete egocentrism, which is fine. But uh, the point here is that uh, he is saying. Thelema is the way of the future, and he is saying that he is the master Therian, or at least representative of the uh, the uh, the forces working through into this aeon and that sort of thing, and making reference to his writings and teachings and whatnot is a good idea, and I would buy into that, um, and I'd, I'd say that uh, uh, the reason I'd buy into that is because otherwise, how is Thelema really driving forward the aeon? through all through the book of the law and all that sort of thing um there yeah there needs to be um some grounds upon which it stands otherwise it it isn't anything and um and if that, everybody can interpret you know the book like you were saying earlier like if people can take the book of the law itself and just cut out crowley altogether then they can interpret those lines you know, put their own spin on it and that sort of thing and not deal with it in the way that they don't want to deal with it. Yeah. And so it's nice to have Crowley's writings to force us to look at it and keep kind of some kind of focus, you know, because otherwise it can evolve into something it's not like everything always does. Uh, well, without Crowley's layer of interpretation, um, passages become more upsetting, not less. You know, <laughs> the explanation of, of, of what it means to peck out the eyes of Jesus as he hung upon the cross or to flap the wings in the face of Muhammad or, um, or you know, the, the cannibalism bits and stuff like this. If you read the, the, the new comment, uh, Crowley has ideas about that that are extremely helpful. And if you just want to throw out Crowley for ad hominem reasons, you know, he's... Uh, oh, um, if you read um, the Kenneth Grant diaries, the the from the Kefalu period where him and Layla are taking all the cocaine and doing the sadomasochism stuff, like there's really kind of upsetting little single paragraphs in there that are worth getting upset about. Um, but if you just, but it doesn't mean he's an idiot. <laughs> and it doesn't mean you can throw at everything he says about the thing he invented that you claim to be interested in. Um, uh, but there was that time he tweeted that thing and, you know... That's right. Somebody dug it up. When and... there's real stuff to be mad at. <laughs> People get hung, hung up on trivialities. Um yeah, no. So you 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 need Crowley as a as as an interpreter. You can't um, uh, because otherwise, otherwise you you have no way to approach the book of the law, uh, except your own just like guessing. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, he wants you to apply to him as a teacher. Um, and if that's egocentric, that's fine. Like, you know, if if yeah, you guys come with Thelema. So if I in, if I invented something. And someone else wanted to know how to do it, and I was the only one in the world who knew how to do it. <laughs> I would invite them to take classes with me. <laughs> um, he also, you know, was I. I think if you read his uh, um, his magical records, it's clear that he's probably the 
the the highest attained master of his time, probably in the entire world, and the greatest English language writer on yoga even till today. Um, so, yes, uh, send him an email. <laughs> Chapter five, the next step. This I had under liberty as oh, my cool. guesstimations. And uh, my secondary word to go with it was just political because he's getting into a little bit of the politics um, and uh, leaving us with the development of things. Um, I mean, incidentally, as far as the teleological thing went in the previous chapter, he, he mentioned how, how this new aeon of Horus will develop, how the child will grow up. These are for us to determine, growing up ourselves in the way of the law of Thelema, under the enlightened guidance of the Master Therian. So whether or not there is an eschatology going on, um, there's certainly a process that we are undergoing by dis by knowing and doing our true will. Yeah, if it's easier for you to think of it as a tautology, um, that's fine. But yeah, there is there there's there is something goal oriented about it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you want to just read this whole one since why it's not? short? Do you want me to read it this time? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Democracy daughters, ferocious fascism, cackling communism, equally frauds, cavort crazily all over the globe. They are hemming us in. This immediately made me think of Jack Parsons, and I could just see him, like, you know, getting off on this. <laughs> see him uh, uh, alone in a, in a, in a, in a one-bedroom apartment with the CIA putting explosives under his kitchen stove. <laughs> they are abortive births of the child, the new aeon of Horus. Liberty stirs once more in the womb of time. Evolution makes its changes by anti-socialistic ways. The abnormal man, who foresees the trend of the times and adapts circumstances intelligently, is laughed at, persecuted, often destroyed by the herd. But he and his heirs, when the crisis comes, are the survivors. I... I I feel it necessary to kind of stop here and there because there's a lot going on here. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, in this case, it's uh, emphasizing. I, I think I, I had in my head that he brought up the whole lone wolf idea that comes up. Uh, I thought he had mentioned that in this until rereading re it recently. So I guess I was wrong, but this is where he gets closest to it. Um, is the stuff on the lone wolf in the herd, was that in um, Lieber... 150 could be and yeah it doesn't say the book of the law announces a new dichotomy is that Libra 152 because i was imagining that we would get to that yeah i don't i'm not sure where that stuff is i can't think of it offhand huh okay but yeah. in this case we have uh i mean an, an emphasis on the abnormal quote-unquote man uh, who foresees the trend of the times um, and which is essentially the function of a lesser prophet of some sort. Uh, and a prophet doesn't have to be, you know, the, the generically thought of um, psychic person or a person who's necessarily uh, directly in communication with God, although that helps. Um, it could simply be somebody who's capable of looking at the past, looking deeply at the present, and being able to make an intelligent guess about the future. The word evolution in occultism is used in kind of a weird way. It's not quite the 
the like social evolution thing that was popular in the uh, early 20th century uh, that got a lot of people in a lot of trouble. Think like so, sorry, social Darwinism. It's not quite that, um, uh, but it's also not quite uh, you know random mutation, sexual selection either. Um, we talk about evolution as being like something a person can can accomplish in one lifetime that's more like uh, metamorphosis or something like a caterpillar into a butterfly but also by doing metamorphosis you do something for the course of history as well like your personal evolution uh, guides the hand of of, of of societal evolution and 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 there is it, whereas in in like so in both social darwinism and like actual darwinism there's a sense of of, of randomness uh in occultism when we use that term um we do think of of a sort of tautology of, of this sort of like progressing uh, of progressing uh not just changing and um so evolution makes its changes by anti-socialistic ways. I think what you can think about here is like Galileo or Copernicus being under house arrest for knowing something about the solar system, being correct when everyone else is wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, that uh, that that he's in, he's endorsing the courage of your convictions, whatever they are. Um, and uh, you might be wrong, but maybe everyone else is wrong. And, like, there's no way to know you're the only one who can evaluate your own understanding. And you should try to do that. Like, you should read and you should research and you should uh, meditate and you should do all of the things that help you know whether or not you're wrong. But it's not – but you shouldn't just um, allow yourself to be steamrolled by some external authority um, because it's possible that everyone else is wrong. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and and if you give up, then 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 no one else has any hope of progress, because it's individuals that that push. Mm-hmm. And this is very much this chapter is very much the individual versus the herd. Um, and, uh, so this is why I was thinking, I, I guess, of that, uh, lone wolf kind of idea. Um, above us today hangs a danger never yet paralleled in history. We suppress the individual in more and more ways. We think in terms of the herd. War no longer kills soldiers. It kills all indiscriminately. Every new measure of the most democratic and autocratic governments is communistic in essence. It is always restriction. We are all treated as imbecile children. Dora, the Shops Act, the motoring laws, Sunday suffocation, the censorship. They won't trust us to cross the roads at will. I love this. Mm -hmm. Fascism is like communism and dishonest into the bargain. The dictators suppress all art, literature, theater, music, news. That does not meet their requirements. All of that stuff that does not re- meet their requirements. Yet the world only moves by the light of genius. The herd will be destroyed in mass. And he mentions the genius. This is an important point too. This uh, something that uh, um, really interests me about Crowley's thought, which uh, I think 
should get a lot of emphasis is his conception of genius and uh, expression of genius, basically honing in on genius, finding ways of, of allowing genius to flow and that sort of thing. Um, and it seems like he's, um, he's suggesting that it is a function of the individual, not of the herd. Genius is something that individuals receive and commune with. It's not, it, it, we don't mean in occultism, and Crowley doesn't usually mean, man, that guy's a genius. Like, <laughs> just because he's cleverer than everyone else, the, uh, the, the, that a, a genius is, um, is, uh, is a spirit that can motivate people, can motivate action, can give inspiration. Yeah, it's something that flows through you. He has a really beautiful little passage in uh, Moonchild, his novel, where uh, Simon If is uh, speaking to, uh, I think it's Lavinia King, but it's a, a female uh, character, uh, and he's expounding his uh, philosophy to some extent, but he's describing... Um, uh, He's describing a typist. It's like as if the the individual is a typist and uh, the holy guardian angel, I guess you can conceive it as, or the genius. I'll just refer to it as the genius so that I cut out the whole question of <laughs> the HGA and that whole kettle of fish. Um, uh, the genius is operating through the typist and the typist can master their art in order to better allow the flow of that genius. Evolution makes its change by anti-socialistic ways. The world only moves by the light of genius. These two bits go together well in my mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, you know what? Anti-socialistic ways also makes me think that uh, I, f I, I, I feel like there's something really in madness. Uh, in the sense of chaos, something to break down order and that sort of thing. And there's something really needed there. I mean, we could go into the whole idea of, like, the shaman who's, like, the outsider from society who um, breaks down the order in some way and, and can throw a wrench into the works and that sort of thing. But uh, I feel like that's an important aspect to magic. That's what people are really afraid of. Um, oh, Crowley worked with demons. It was so dark. Oh, you know, some of the stuff is very misogynist and some of the stuff is very uh very racist and like i know that it's not core teachings it's just diary entries or like venting frustrations but like it's in there and it bothers me or like people have said to me before that Thelema is too masculine uh because it involves reading like as if women can't read which is insane <laughs> um but uh but that it's too academic and too masculine it's all an excuse. The real thing people are afraid of is just the is the is the the label on the tin. This is the philosophy of free will, which means uh, you know people are free. They they do what they need to do. They connect with their true will. They express their genius. And the fear is the justifiable fear is that sometimes that's dangerous. Sometimes people are inspired to do dangerous monstrous scary things and uh and that thelema includes the possibility of madness and 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 so people are scared of thelema for the same reason they're scared of uh of, of everything else you know the that uh the all these endless restrictions crowley's talking about mm -hmm. are are you know what if something goes wrong something's gonna go wrong 
get over it. Yeah. But uh, but that's 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 the when anything anyone says about about Thelema. Uh, from a critical bent, all they're saying is I'm scared, mm-hmm. and that's the thing. The not uh, not just the idea of like censorship and and the things he's talking about, but also just the herd in general. The whole idea of the herd is that it's safety, yeah, as Nietzsche talked about. Uh, it's safety in the herd, and I mean, there's a necessity to the herd in a sense because it's part. I mean, this is society we're talking about here. But it's like uh, uh, the safety factor needs to be broken up. This is fundamental to um, society being able to survive. I stumbled across something by uh, um, just like a, a Facebook meme that was attributed to Simone de Beauvoir. And it does. I don't know if it's if it's her, but it sounds like something she would say. Um, that uh, the oppressors would not be so powerful if they did not have so many allies among the oppressed. Mm-hmm. So people are not only afraid that um, of the freedom of other people, but they're afraid of what they would do if they had their own freedom. Mm-hmm. You know, Simone de Beauvoir's uh, criticism, part of Simone de Beauvoir's criticism, uh, is that um, women are 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 women are scared of feminism because they're so used to being decorations you know Mm. it's it's nice to have a comfortable home and it's nice to have a husband who takes care of you and if that means you can't vote then that's too bad but like taking care of myself when i've been infantilized my whole life is a scary prospect yeah and uh and um so she's worried about people who are going to be anti-feminist just because they're they're scared of what liberty might look like. Mm-hmm. And I, I think mean, Thelema faces the same problem. Yeah, and taking a different slant on it, the idea of being in an abusive relationship, people, you know, it's easy to say, well, why don't you get out of it? Mm-hmm. And it's a scary place to be in because it's you're afraid that trying to get out of it is going to be a greater threat. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah, of course you would, but it's like, that's that's a scary place to be in. I mean, when we're talking about the uh, the herd, generally we're thinking in terms of just the uh, docility of the herd and the the you know being placated, you know, getting all your uh, commodities, having like all these comforts and things, and and uh, um, just being lulled into a, a sort of stupefaction and being able to be happy with your lot in mm. life. That's being in the herd, and it's seductive. Because it's safe. Thank you and good night. Sorry. (laughs) I guess we can finish this one off. The establishment of the law of Thelema is the only way to preserve individual liberty and to assure the future of the race. In the words of the famous paradox of the Comte de Phoenix, however you pronounce that in French, the absolute rule of the state shall be a function of the absolute liberty of each individual will. All men and women are invited to cooperate with the Master Therian in this, the great work. Now, is the law of Thelema the only way to preserve individual f- liberty and to assure the future of the human race? What else you got? <laughs> I mean, I, I think... The problem is he doesn't see a lot of alternatives. You know, there's the these these mass movements that he's identifying. You know, that I've called in the past. You know, just like think thinking of as being like modern partisanship, right? Like uh, in Canada, we have all these political parties, 
uh, like five or something. Um, but you know, you either vote liberal or conservative, and if you, if you if you care enough to vote green, then you're still getting behind someone else. You know, you're not using your own, having your own opinions. Crowley says, "I've never in my life disgraced myself by voting." <laughs> um, and uh, these mass movements that try to save people try to save people by having a clear platform and a, and a doctorate and an organized. Uh, a, a very clear, complete program, you know, and uh, and I think Crowley thinks, however virtuous the program is, the fact that it's clear and complete is problematic because what you're hoping is that everyone is going to line up and cooperate. It's a form of restriction, ultimately. Whereas, if if there's another way uh, to to save the world from these problems. Thelema is the best way to get at it because it gives the maximum number of people the maximum amount of 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 freedom to do creative work. I think this is very true. I think it's uh, uh it's easy to I mean the first go-to place tends to be to think of the uh, overarching sort of ordeal. So like you say, it's like the political parties. It's the idea of uh, seeing it from, oh, is communism a good idea? Is fascism a good idea? Is democracy a good idea? Seeing things from this level. But uh, by taking it always back to the individual at this time and just concentrating on this individual as the uh, fundamental um, starting point, that that seems really important. I Every time I start thinking about well, anytime I think about politics, I, my mind always goes back to education and the way that we're, you know, supporting and facilitating people as they are growing into the world uh, becomes, you know, to me, the backbone of things. And the the best way to to facilitate them is to empower them. And what better way to empower the individual than some of the teachings of Thelema, really, when it comes down to it, uh, and the lessons of Thelema. Be honest with me. If someone had never heard of Thelema before and and listened to this two hours of us talking about this, do you think they'd be any closer to the mark? Hmm, good question. That's a tough call because, yeah, the unfortunate thing is that we have a nasty habit of assuming everybody <laughs> doing kind of what Crowley often did was just assume everybody already knows what we're talking about. Yeah, but we read a good chunk of this, right? And mm-hmm. so, uh does it function as the introduction it's obviously designed to be? I've been calling this the preface. It's literally called the introduction. <laughs> <laughs> um you think if you if you didn't know if you if you weren't already on board, do you think you'd be more curious now than you were before? Or it would be interesting to hear. I don't want to assume so, but I would like to think so. I, I think uh, this is Crowley at... I'm surprised at how concise he is here, because he's not generally this concise. Uh, and he's really restrained himself, If uh, it, at least uh, that's the impression I get. Um, and he's managed to get everything in a nutshell. It's uh, the the philosophy the uh the basic mythology if you want to call it that the idea that this is uh um that might be a dangerous term i guess i don't know if that can you know the term mythology is a little bit um you know uh, loaded i suppose i always say doctrine i don't know why i said mythology i think just because um you were wondering if people would 
be weird about the aeons like think they were too spooky or too made up or something well you so know i was allowing for the idea that it might be a mythology mm-hmm. but that's not the word i would use either. i don't i don't know if it's a terrible word at the same time like i think there was some place where crowley was uh, like in a letter to somebody who was saying that you should emphasize the uh, mythology of the reception of the law um mm. the book of the law um and i think the the idea being a recognition of the fact that inevitably it becomes a mythology, you know, and then that this is a, just a psychological fact. All of these things blow up over the years, you know, and this is why we have this image of Crowley as the image that we carry around. None of us actually knew Crowley. We just have an image that we carry around, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so same thing with the uh, with the reception of the Book of the Law. That's something that he thought was worth popularizing. And so uh, the idea of I was delivering the Book of the Law, um, speaking on behalf of Hurparkrat and each of the, the Thelemic deities in turn, it's not wrong to call it a mythology. It's just wrong to uh, say that that means it's fiction. And I think mythology tends to equate to fiction in mm-hmm. our modern conception. Thank you and good night. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely, Darren. Uh, this was uh, this was great as always. I appreciate it. Um, let's uh, let's try to hit it again in about three weeks. Sounds great. All right, ninety three. Ninety three. Thank you for joining us. Look for Toronto Thelema on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Watch for events in the city. And join us again in the darkly splendid abodes. I can't believe how much time I get on these SD cards. Uh, I have not erased anything since I started doing these. And uh, it still has... According to this, 160 hours. Hours? <laughs> Which I assume is relative. We are so old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow! <laughs> what's, what's this button do? It's taps... Lock. I remember when those tapes only had about 15 minutes. <laughs> Back in my day, you used to have to cut the grooves in yourself. A long play record had four songs on one <laughs> side, and then if you only had three songs, you just had to leave a gap on the other side. You used to have to have this little red doohickey yeah. that you'd put on the record because it was a 45. And Okay, anyway. So... <laughs> God damn it. <laughs>